Amen. Well, good morning. Open your Bibles with me, beloved, to the Gospel of Mark. Our love and thanks to Brady and Diana for leading us in worship. Beloved, I pray that you have come to the house of God with great expectation that through the Word of God we may encounter the God of the Word. Far be it that coming through those doors should ever become mundane or routine. There is nothing routine about what occurs here every week. But beloved, how do we value it? How do we press into it? Do we prepare for it the night before? Do we dress for it the day of? Does it matter? An old English preacher from the 1800s named Roland Hill, he once posed this question in a sermon. He exhorted his congregation to suppose that they were attending today to hear the reading of a will, a will where you expected a legacy of wealth to be left to you. What would you be doing? How would you employ your time while that will was being read? Would you not be giving all your ear to hear if anything was left to you and how much it was? That is the way I advise you to hear the gospel, close quote. Beloved, do you expect a treasure to be left for you here today? Are you listening for your name to sound out among the pages of Scripture? Let not a single moment a single opportunity to sit under the preached word of God be wasted or squandered. It is precious. And within it are the golden keys that open the door to Christ and to his heart that equip us to look a world in the face and proclaim a higher truth than our own. That despite the headlines, our Redeemer lives. All these treasures are laid up for us today as we open the word of God. Saints, if I will commit as your pastor to preach, as the Puritan Richard Baxter proclaimed, as never sure to preach again, and as a dying man to dying men, will you commit to press in, to strain your ears and your mind to grasp the beauties of heaven and the warnings of hell. You know, some have said that they just can't understand what's being said from this pulpit. You need not remain in that state. We use the standard of the great Bible translator William Tyndale that a plowboy be able to understand what is being said. And if you can't, Write it down and ask. Press in for understanding. Run down that pastor. Run down those who are further down their walk of faith. Explain this. Look around. There's a lot of gray hair and wisdom sitting in these pews whose joy it would be to walk with you if something were hard to understand. Beloved, there is more biblical depth and wisdom in this small group than I have seen collectively in churches five times this size. Use it. If we treat our time and the word as a spectator sport, we cannot expect to understand and grow. Beloved, you will not hear the use of any big words from this pulpit without explanation of that word. We don't use lofty language to impress anyone. Truths are imparted so the least educated, a plowboy, can grasp the beauty of the text. But it does take work on your part. We have to be hungry to learn and grow. You may need to take notes. You may need to write down a question and go back and study it later. We have seasoned saints in here who tell me all the time that they go back and listen to the Sunday message a second or even a third time if necessary. They are hungry. If you've shown up today and you don't have that hunger or that drive, dear one, the problem is not that you can't understand. The problem is not one of the head. It's of the heart. If you were raised on shallow teaching or preaching, or maybe not raised with any biblical teaching at all, praise God that you're here now. Press in even harder. 
is if your life depended on it, you could do it. And the truth is, it does. Saints, what manner of days and years do you think lie ahead of us? Search your spirit. Look to the word. What times lie ahead for the joyful warriors of Christ? Those with eyes to see and ears to hear who are informed by Scripture know what hour it is. These are serious times. My wife and I were talking recently about the the wonderful live presentation by Rosaria Butterfield a few weeks ago, back for our Women of Grace study, which was authored by her. Which, by the way, if you are a woman, you should be in that study here. (laughs) And she made a profound statement that so resonated as someone who's given charge of a precious flock. Rosaria said that one of the reasons for the state of the American church today is that we don't know what time it is. We don't know what time it is. Let that not be said of this flock. May our eyes be awake and alive. May we walk with understanding, no matter how hard you need to work to achieve it. These are not days of lazy Christianity. These are not days of casual church. We are training. We are exercising. We are running in such a way as to win the race. Cafeteria Christians, casual Christians, Christmas and Easter Christians, loner Christians, that dog won't hunt in the spirit of the age that is coming and indeed is already here. This is the age of the joyful warrior, trained and skilled, discerning and sober, knowing their scripture, strong in the word, able to disciple others, willing to labor and work for the gospel. That is the Christianity before us. This must be the battle cry of the pulpits. If you haven't noticed, we're called to be on a wartime footing. Joyful warriors but warriors nonetheless. It is the aim of Harrison Hills to arm you well. And when you know you're armed, it makes you bold in battle. It makes you strong in temptation, able to love when all the world can do is hate. But that takes work. You know, some have shared with me that they've occupied a pew for 40 years and they wasted it. This morning... You know if you're in training. You know it. You know if your spirit man is working out and hitting the gym. But today is the day to tighten up our ship, saints. Do you know what time it is? We will give you the tools and the weapons, but you need to use them. We'll give you the weights, but you need to lift them. The running track is here, but you're going to need to lace up. So congratulations on the gym membership. Now use it, and we shall. Amen? Amen. A good amen. Praise the Lord. Well, last week we dove headlong into part three of our Gethsemane series, looking to one of the most iconic and well-known scenes as the Son of Man was betrayed with a kiss. And to be sure, this was the, well, the greatest betrayal between humans ever recorded, owing to the perfection and the divinity of Christ. Measuring the depth of of the betrayal, not by the act, but by the purity of the one who was being betrayed. And we took some time last week to trace Judas's steps as he left the upper room, as Satan entered into him to pursue this evil act, taking the short walk from that upper room over to the temple where the Sanhedrin would have been gathered, telling them that he knows where Jesus will be that night. Owing to the chief priest's fear of the crowd and the uprising, being able to do this in the dead of night and outside the city walls was a perfect setup. And of course, with these marching orders in hand from the Sanhedrin, Judas would have crossed a small road over to Fort Antonia. And this four-towered garrison that overlooked the temple, Pilate would have been there. This was Roman HQ for all of Jerusalem. Of course, being the Passover, this place would have been absolutely stocked with soldiers and activity. And that's great, because John's gospel showed us that they would send an entire cohort. 
480 soldiers along on this arrest party with accusations that Jesus was an insurrectionist against Rome. And they would take no chances. Of course, this required us to, well, maybe purge some Hollywood images that we have of this garden arrest scene in two ways, really. Not only that, this probably was closer to 600 people in this arresting party. Once all the religious representatives were included, it was a big party. But the nature of Judas's famous kiss, we explored that as well, did we not? You'll recall Katafileo. Katafileo, right? Our exuberant love. Our exuberant kisses. Judas showered Jesus with kisses. This was not a ceremonial, solemn kiss on the cheek that we so often see depicted. And that matters to us. We care about that because it speaks to the treachery of the betrayal, of the other depravity and the wickedness of it. But of course, before we could even get to the famous kiss of death, we had to make a little detour to John's telling of the garden scene, where we beheld an event that really changes the the look and the feel of the entire scene. It's here that John records Jesus asking who they are looking for. And they replied, Jesus the Nazarene. And Jesus responds with really the verbal Aramaic form of the Tetragrammaton, right? Jesus says, I am he. So when he said that to them, I am he, John 18, 6, they drew back and fell to the ground. Pure power. This is a Jesus who stood up from his blood-soaked prayer in triumphal submission to the Father, even having been strengthened by an angel. Jesus was, he was charged for lack of a better word, for the task ahead. And we explore the reason for Jesus doing this, for blowing over a few hundred people there with just a word. Jesus did it that there might be no mistake, that you are not taking Jesus against his will. You might be slapping the cuffs on, but have no doubt who's in charge. Don't confuse your position with my authority. Nobody takes my life from me. I give it up willingly. Jesus will echo this same truth to Pilate, will he not? In only a few hours, you would have no authority over me if it were not given to you from above. Beloved, time and again, we are reminded of this during Passion Week, that Jesus was not swept away by the blind wrath of a mob. This is God's timetable. And God's plan. Now with Judas's betrayal complete, we last left our Lord in the garden having been seized and arrested. But this scene is far from over. As if the incredible prayer and, and strain that, that burst Jesus' capillaries to sweat blood were not enough. 600 people with torches and clubs and swords were not enough. Jesus blowing them over with the word was not enough. A a betrayal with treacherous kiss was not enough. The drama is just getting started in the garden, if you can believe it. Well, today we're going to complete the fourth and final installment of our Gethsemane series. Today's text really has, well, all the elements of a true thriller. We have scandal, fighting, attempted murder, plot twists of betrayal and fear. Demonstrations of love, a miracle, even a naked man running off into the woods. We have got it all. The Lord has been seized at this moment. And as we will see, things begin to unravel in remarkable fashion. So with that, beloved, let us look to our final text of the Gethsemane this morning. Mark 14, 47 through 52. Mark 14, 47 through 52. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus answered and said to them, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? Every day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But this has taken place in order that the scripture would be fulfilled. 
and they all left him and fled. And a young man was following him, wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body, and they seized him, but he pulled free of the linen sheet and escaped naked. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a sight this is before us this morning. Lord, it has been our joy and our privilege to be in the garden with you thus far. Lord, to see the sea, to see the sights and to smell the smells, Lord, to witness the glory, the awful glory of it. Lord, as we wrap this season to a close. Lord, we ask that you would illuminate the text for us. Lord, that you would show us what is on top, in the middle, and underneath the text. Lord, that we might understand. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Well, one of the most venerable and revered figures in military history and someone I've spent a, a great deal of time studying was Civil War General Thomas J. Jackson otherwise known as Stonewall Jackson. He was a man of tremendous faith, and even as a Confederate from the South, he abhorred the institution of slavery, and he certainly never considered his service to the South to be in support of slavery, but rather to the freedom of his native Virginia. But one of Stonewall's campaigns was known as the Valley Campaign. This was named for the Shenandoah Valley. It's still studied today by military strategists today for its genius. He had a very small contingent of soldiers that would literally run double time and triple time throughout the valley, making such fast time that Union dispatches showed their generals thinking Stonewall had over 10 times the number of men he actually did. Jackson outmaneuvered, he outwitted, he outflanked the Union Army at every turn till finally the unthinkable happened. Stonewall got even further than he ever thought he could. And on a clear night beneath twinkling stars, Stonewall stood with all his men at the Potomac River, looking directly at the street lamps of Washington City in the distance, now called Washington, D.C., there were no Union troops, zero, between Stonewall and Washington City. Apart from two Union soldiers posted at the front door of that White House, at that moment Stonewall Jackson could have marched on Washington and been standing over Abraham Lincoln in his bedroom. And there's nothing anyone could have done about it. The war could have ended right there. But Stonewall was a man under authority. He was a man who understood authority. He did only what he was told. It didn't matter what he thought or felt. Stonewall never got ahead of his leader. That leader, of course, was Robert E. Lee. And that night, Stonewall sent an urgent dispatch to Lee advising him of the situation and requesting permission to march on Washington City to sit right down at Abraham Lincoln's bedside. Wouldn't that be a sight? to wake up to. But the dispatch didn't arrive in time. He was unable to get permission from Lee to go forward. Even though Stonewall knew that they should march, he would not go ahead of his leader. He would not take authority that was not his own. As tempting as it might have been, he was forced to wait. Understanding as a Christian, beloved, as tempting as it might be, we do not get ahead of God. We don't force our own timing. Christ is to be followed, not usurped. A Christian is a person under authority, by definition. We aren't rebels. We go where he directs and leads. It was this lesson that a certain someone in our text today would never forget later in his life. So let us look to our opening scene here with verse 47, beloved. Verse 47. But one of those who stood by drew his sword. Now pause there for a moment. We have much to see. Well, first off, who are we talking about here? Who is this? That's Peter, right? 
John 18 verse 10 tells us it was Peter. We see the anonymous type of writing here, though. Why? Why? Why doesn't he name him? Well, who gave Mark his information? Peter, right? So very common in the Gospels when when the writer or, or the source is speaking about themselves, they won't name themselves. John did that often in his Gospels. So we know that it's Peter. And we know a lot about Peter, don't we? His personality, his boldness, his brashness, his, his impulsivity. But now that we know the person, we have an object here as well, don't we? A sword. Now question right at the outset, what is a sword doing here? There's nothing wrong with having a sword on its face. Nothing wrong with protection. But what about these swords specifically? How did they come about, these swords? Should they have had these swords? Now, there's no need to turn there, but if we look to Luke's account of this, we see the record of these swords. Luke 22, verse 38 reads this. They said, Lord, look, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. Now, we need to be very careful of the English here. When we read that, we we may think that Jesus is is speaking to the number of swords, right? Now, we have two swords, and Jesus said it is enough. You have enough swords, right? As in, that's the correct number of swords. But that's not the meaning. Jesus is speaking about the conversation, not about the swords. Jesus, in context, is telling them again what must happen to him in Luke 22, Not only that the scriptures might be fulfilled, but that persecution is coming when the master leaves. So they say, right, we've got two swords. (laughs) And Jesus, in response to that, is saying, no, you're thinking carnally. It is God who will go before you and protect you. Basically, enough of this kind of worldly thinking. I've said it before, I'm saying it again, and that's that. Enough. And we belabor that point. Why? Because this sword is not even supposed to be here in the first place. If you think you're going to protect me, or even yourself from what's coming, with two swords or 200 swords, you don't understand. You don't understand. Enough thinking this way. It is only in God's strength and his leading that you will come after me. It is not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. So understand that it was was carnal thinking and carnal understanding. It was a lack of faith and, and eyesight that made this garden seem possible. And the response in Luke 22 to Jesus saying, it is enough. The disciples' response should have been to set the swords down. Listen to the master. This is bigger than any of you. And indeed, where in the book of Acts? Amidst the founding and the building and the formation of the church, amidst all the horrendous persecution, there's no record of a disciple picking up a sword. They learned this lesson. We're not talking about self-defense here either. Don't conflate the two. He's saying you're not going to build my church. Stop or start the plan of God with a sword. It's not going to happen. John MacArthur makes a great point about this. He says this is not Islam. Christianity will not advance by killing people. It's not by the sword that we move. And yet Peter pulls his sword and does what? And struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Ah, but wait, there's more. There's more. Again, Luke's account. Listen to the conversation that happens here. Luke 22. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Which, by the way, remember, he had not yet kissed him. That was divine knowledge. When those who were around him saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his right ear. Notice something, saints. 
Peter did not even give Jesus time to respond before he struck. Peter was not following Jesus in his lead. He jumped out ahead of him, didn't he? We needed some Stonewall Jackson here, big time. I want to strike with my sword. I want to ride on Washington, but I'm a man under authority. And here Peter is not acting like a man under authority. He wasn't following Christ. He was out in front of Christ, making things happen. Beloved, that yields chaos and tragedy for the Christian. So do we see the series of decision-making, the decisions that are making by Peter that got us here? It wasn't just one choice, was it? It was multiple choices. Again, the sword should not have even been here. And even if it now was, Peter should have waited on the Lord to answer. Instead, he struck. Now, what do we know about this? Well, our text says it was the slave of the high priest. Not a slave, but the slave. John's account tells us this man's name was Malchus. Now, again, we need to dispel some, some Hollywood myths here. Now, some might envision this as, as Peter actually aiming to cut off Malchus's ear. Some sort of ceremonial weird thing. That's not what we see here. Understand that Peter was aiming for his neck with a right blow. This was attempted murder. As Peter swung for his neck, Malchus ducked. And Hebert, in his commentary, he tells us that since Mark elsewhere does not use the diminutive, that means small, form for ear, its use here intends to indicate that only the lobe of the ear was cut. So Peter strikes for his neck or his head with his right hand with a right blow, intending to kill him. Malchus ducks, and Peter's sword catches the earlobe. That's the actual scene in our mind's eye. And just a question, saints. What if Peter had been successful that night? Having just murdered the slave of the high priest. Well, he would have been arrested immediately. There would have been no sermon at Pentecost, for the church was birthed, would there be? It's possible Peter would have hung right there next to Jesus. Do we see God's protection of Peter, even in his foolishness? I think we can all look back on our own lives and testify to that. So what is Jesus' immediate response to Peter's attempted murder here? Well, Matthew, Luke, and John all record a piece of it, but listen to Matthew's account. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will not at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? Well, you know the next question, don't you? Inquiring minds, how many is 12 legions, Pastor? 75,000. 75,000. You know, one theologian, he hearkened back to the Assyrians, where just one angel killed 185,000 Assyrians. Now take 75,000 angels. Thanks for the sword offer. But you don't get it. It is enough. I don't need your sword. I've got 75,000 angels if I want them. Not only right now, but to take me off the cross if I wanted it. Luke's account has Jesus saying, stop, no more of this. But Peter's not out of the woods yet, is he? We still have a piece of earlobe sitting on the ground. That could still bring the death penalty because of the high standing of that slave. So that means nothing short of the complete restoration of Malchus is going to spare Peter's arrest, his likely scourging, or even his execution. Now Mark doesn't show Malchus healing, but thankfully Luke 22 does tell us Jesus healed his ear. 
Now, did he reattach it? Did he do a creative miracle? I don't know. It doesn't say. But it was such a complete restoration that Peter's offense was dropped. That we know. I'm going to say it was pretty good. So Jesus asked the co- Jesus even asked the cohorts to let the disciples go their way. Let them go. It's me you want. There's no more crime being held over Peter's head. Now one must really wonder what this cohort was thinking by now. Having witnessed this, first being blown over by a word, then a creative miracle. What was the talk back at Fort Antonia? I wonder. So now who's going to slap the cuffs on this guy? Back to the text. Look at what Jesus says next. It's incredible, really. Verses 48 and 49. I'll read them as one. Verses 48 and 49. And Jesus answered and said to them, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me, as you would against a robber? Every day I was with you in the temple teaching. And you did not seize me. But this has taken place in order that the scriptures would be fulfilled. Beloved, Jesus here is not protesting the arrest. He is protesting the manner of the arrest. What evidence do you have that warrants this? Thousands watched me this week in the temple. I was right there if you wanted me, but you didn't. Why? Because you're cowards. You're hypocrites. You feared the people. You fear the crowds. You don't fear God. You fear man. He's basically shaming them openly, right? He's calling out their hypocrisy. This entire display, around 600 men, it's ridiculous. And they know it, by the way. They know it. Remember last week, we looked at the term used of Jesus being, quote, led away, that that is religious language, that it was not under the sword, but it was under the club, meaning Jesus was took by the religious temple guards, not even the Romans. They knew. They knew. And indeed, the next stop will be who? The high priest, confirming that. So this whole display is a sham from the start. Over the top, no evidence to support such a manner of arrest. But we need to ask something. Why say any of this? Why say any of this? Is Jesus trying to stop or or stall his arrest? No. So why say this? Because there will be many points along his trial where he opens not his mouth, isn't there? He opens not his mouth, but here he does. The last part of verse 49 tells us why. This has taken place in order that the scriptures would be fulfilled. Now, yes, there might be some there that night and in the cohort, some of the 600 that maybe even be saved through what they saw and they heard. Perhaps we know that there were Roman soldier conversions. We read about them, right? Even at the cross, one declared, surely this man was the Son of God. So that could certainly be in view for why Jesus speaks. But where is Jesus' heart? Who did he go back to check on three times in the garden, in the midst of unbelievable agony? His disciples. One last reminder, this has taken place in order that the scriptures would be fulfilled. Watch this, saints. What scripture does Jesus speak of here? Well, specifically here, it's Isaiah 53, verse 12, right? That Jesus would be numbered with the transgressors. Now, yes, that also applies to being crucified between two thieves, but it's certainly in view here as well. He is counted by the Romans and by the temple guard as a transgressor. He's considered by them a lawbreaker, a sinner. Look, beloved, even here in the garden, what is Jesus? He is our substitute. Why 
Does the divine plan of God have Jesus numbered with the transgressors? I'm going to ask that again, beloved. Why does the divine plan of God have Jesus numbered with the transgressors? Because he is our substitute. You and I are transgressors. Therefore, he will be numbered among them. He will take it upon himself. We have a perfect substitute take our place. Beloved, this manner of arrest was due to us. Taken away as a robber and an insurrectionist. What do we think we were before Christ saved us? We were rebels. We were thieves. A cohort of 600 would have been appropriate for us as a measure of our high treason against the king. So Jesus took it for us. Beloved, understand the beauty of substitution. We cannot know Christ. We cannot know the gospel without grasping even at the most basic elementary level that Jesus stood in our place. The arrest in the garden being approached as a murderer, as an insurrectionist, as a robber, as a rebel. That was our arrest. And he took it perfectly. Your substitute has been arrested in your place. And he's been numbered with the transgressors. That's beautiful. Now back to our text now, verse 50. Verse 50, such a simple statement. Drenched in sadness, of course. Verse 50. And they all left him and fled. You will all fall away. Because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd. And the sheep will be scattered. Isn't it great to know? Beloved, as we see 11 disciples who have been with Jesus for three years now, fleeing into the darkness that Jesus saw every sin they would ever commit, we would ever commit, every time that we would flee from him, and he saved us anyway. As Jesus stood on the shoreline, when he called Peter and Andrew, James and John, to lay down their nets and to follow him, he knew it all when he called them. Yes, they would all abandon him. He knew that. When he saved them, Paul Washer put it so well, quote, I have given God countless reasons not to love me. None of them has been strong enough to change his mind. God knew what the disciples would do. Even from Zechariah, God knew the sheep would scatter. And he called them anyway. He called them anyway. God saw every thought and word and deed that we had done and will ever do. And he called us anyway. He saved us anyway. That is the beauty and the tragedy of verse 50. Is it not? So yes, the intent of the author is to show really the the complete abandonment of Christ here. But as we see ourselves in the actions of the disciples, having all abandoned our Lord and all ran our own way, For various reasons in our life, when we were to be walking with Christ, we were wandering or even running from Christ. It is then that the light comes pouring in, that the reminder of the Holy Spirit comes pouring in, that God saw it all and he saved us anyway. So we can run like the disciples, but we can't escape his grasp. He doesn't lose a single one that the Father has given him, and that includes you. The disciples may be running, but they're still running in the palm of his hand. All will be safely brought into the fold in due time. All enjoy the air of heaven, even today as we speak of their failure. So finally, of all the experiences that we've had in the garden up to this point, from 
crossing the Kidron Valley, to the sleeping disciples, to the, the Trinitarian agony of prayer, to the triumphal submission of the Son, to a treacherous kiss, to attempted murder, and the disciples fleeing. Whew. We end our garden scene in a most unusual way. Our final verse, verses 51 and 52, I'll, I'll read them as one. Verses 51 and 52. And a young man was following him, wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body, and they seized him. But he pulled free of the linen sheet and escaped naked. Wow. Well, can we all agree at least this morning that not all Bible stories are suitable for reenactment in Sunday school? But... Let us be reminded, beloved of God, as we dive into this, well, this most unique scene, let us be reminded of the glorious truths surrounding the sufficiency of Scripture. There are two glorious sides to the same coin of sufficiency, aren't there? One side of it is the revealing of it. And in that revelation that God has given us all we need, In the closed canon, within the completed work of Scripture, He's given us all we need to live a life of faith and godliness. Every tool we need, the decreed revelation of God, of creation, salvation, redemption, eternity, everything we need, we can know within Scripture, within its perfect sufficiency. It contains all we need to live a godly life. So thus we first say then that Scripture is all-sufficient in what it reveals. And secondly, as most of you know, it is perfectly sufficient in what it conceals. There are many, many things that Scripture does not tell us. And while some use this as a a reason to question the, the completeness or the wholeness or the trustworthiness of Scripture, we thank the Lord that he has concealed so much from us. It is the height of hubris and human pride to think our finite minds could wrap around the divine. If we were to have all revelation given to us, our minds would melt. We would be ash at its very presence. Beloved, no one can even see God and live. And yet some think they can swing in the fullness of his mind. Some wish we were given more. But the truth is, beloved, most won't even be obedient to the word we already have. Nevertheless, having more. If God is who he says he is, and possesses the attributes that he does, we should expect mystery. We should expect concealment of certain things. How many times does the psalmist or Job proclaim these very truths that some things are too high and lofty for me? I cannot know them. I'm but a man, right? I'm made from dust. So a healthy reminder for us as we look to this scene that Scripture is all-sufficient in both what it reveals and in this case what it conceals. So look with me to this final scene. Here we see a young man. Well, thank you very much. That's quite literally all the identifying marks we are given. But our first inquisitive thought is what? Who is he? Who is he? Well, we're going to briefly explore some theories, but we must say at the outset, we don't know. We don't know for certain who this is, and that's okay. So why speculate? Scripture didn't tell us why speculate. As we'll see further on, there are some very encouraging reasons for this concealment. So what are some of the theories of the identity here? Well, the first and the most common is that this was Mark, otherwise known as John Mark, meaning the author of this gospel. That's worth exploring a bit. Now, much of this is speculation. It is trying to connect dots. Those dots began in the upper room. Now, we didn't teach this during that part of the text because it could not be proven. But here we must reference it if we're to make the case that this was Mark possibly escaping the garden. But we know that the home where the upper room was, was a wealthy woman. We know that because of the two levels. We know that Mark's mother was an early convert in Jesus' ministry. You can read all about that in Acts 12. 
And we know that John Mark was a cousin of Barnabas. See that in Colossians 4.10. And we know that Mary was Barnabas' aunt. Meaning, there are many close, intimate connections. So much so that you recall in Acts that Peter felt safest to go to John Mark's mother's house when he was threatened with persecution. And when he got there, he already found a bunch of people already there praying. This woman's house was a central hub. She was very trusted. So is it possible that the final supper was held in the home of John Mark and his mother? It's very possible. Very possible. Which means Mark would have been in the home while the upper room unfolded. Maybe downstairs, maybe on the roof. They sat up there during the evenings. In an adjacent room, perhaps listening to all that was said. We don't know. Again, it's conjecture, but it's very possible. And the hour was very late when Jesus and his disciples would have arose to go to the garden. So is it possible that Mark heard them leave and he quickly wrapped himself in a sheet and and followed at a distance to see what happened? That's very possible. Now some have asked, who else would know this detail of the garden but Mark? That's a fair question. It seems very important to Mark. All the others had fled. Again, a fair point. But more clues emerge from the sheet, though. The famous sheet. The word for sheet here is sindon. I had to look that up this morning to make sure my pronunciation was correct. Sindon. This word cracks open a treasure of goods. A sindon is a fine, fine linen. It's named after Sidon, where it came from. That's, that's in India. If you slept with one of those around you, you weren't poor. That would be quite extravagant. And that jives with the wealthy home of the upper room. However, here's where it gets interesting. We see the word sindon used five times in Scripture. And every use besides here shows a sindon as being a fine cloth for burial. Christ's body was wrapped in a sindon. Question. Who else would have been wrapped in a sindon, loved Jesus, and was alive to tell you about it? Who lived close by, right in Bethany? Who hosted Jesus the entire week of passion, with Jesus no doubt speaking much about what was coming? If you weren't insanely wealthy, why else would you have yourself in a sindon? Because you were once wrapped in it. Lazarus. Another excellent theory. Would your burial sheets perhaps be a most prized possession if you were Lazarus? I could only imagine. Uh, beloved, whether it was John Mark or, or whether Lazarus or really whether just a, a wealthy person who, who lived by the garden or the owner of the garden who was aroused by 600 torches, that'll wake you up, see what was going on or, or one of the other few theories, either way, it was concealed from us. Now, saving the somewhat comedic value of this scene, why then did the Holy Spirit, of all the things that could be recorded, what does the end of John's gospel say? He did so much that all the books in all the world could not contain them, and yet he recorded this. It's here for us. So it's obviously not meant to be the person who abandoned him, that carries the importance of the meaning. That's concealed. Thus, it's meant to be the act. Now, there's two truths that are gleaned from this young man being stripped of his sindon and fleeing naked. The first is to demonstrate complete abandonment. Meaning there were no friendlies lurking in the shadows, lending Jesus even emotional support. Jesus was alone with his enemies. So we are meant to see and absorb. We are meant to be really immersed in the the wicked loneliness of the moment of Jesus' abandonment by all. Not one remained, even the guy in the bushes. The declaration of Amos 2.16 is consummated. Even the bravest of warriors will flee naked on that day, declares the Lord. And having recognized that, the, the beauty of the anonymity begins to come into view. 
Holy Spirit, why did you preserve this for us? Why not tell us who this was? Understand, beloved, anonymity is an invitation to us, to the reader. It is a divine allowance of the Holy Spirit to put yourself in that garden. With no identity, we may all identify with this man a little closer. If we knew who he was, we would bring all the information and all the baggage that we know about that man along with it. But we don't know. That's an invitation. Edwards, in his commentary, he, he couches this, anonym, in this anonymity as, as an open-door opportunity to examine our own readiness to abandon Christ. And indeed it is. Indeed it is. We opened our message today with an exhortation, did we not? Did we not? Saints, what manner of days and years do you think lie ahead of us? What times lie ahead for joyful warriors of Christ? That these are serious times. Those who don't know what time it is, even though they may have followed Jesus into the garden, crouched in the bush, they will flee when pressed, leaving all that they held precious on the ground. Beloved, our substitute has taken the arrest we deserved, treated as the criminal that we were, and he set his precious face toward Calvary. He will endure lies, and torture all that we deserved as our perfect substitute. Now, having walked through Gethsemane, beloved, we know him more. Now we love him more. If you don't know him at all, be introduced today. Come in repentance and faith. Don't run away, naked or otherwise. When we were faithless, he was faithful. When we ran... He found us. He captured us, and he called us his own. And so we are. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this final scene of the garden. Lord, as you have risen in triumphal submission to the Father... Lord, with your precious face set now towards Calvary, with your jaw set like a flint toward Golgotha. Lord, we do not desire first to be Peter. We do not desire to get out in front of you. But Lord, that we might follow. That we might follow in submission. Well, that we might not trust our own strength. But Lord, your divine providence that is promised. There were 75,000 angels then. There are 75,000 angels now, Lord, at your beckon. You've not changed. Lord, as we allow this message to go down deep, as we watch you take the arrest that we deserved, we ask that the glory of your substitutionary death would awaken alive in us today. Lord, each one in here is precious to us. We ask that you would keep them until we can meet again by your divine decree. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.